episode 69, How to Reap the Value from an HIE. Today, I talk with Dr. Jan Lee about the Delaware Health Information Exchange. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. In the hunt to deliver value, consider this. Value comes from solving problems. Successful entrepreneurial ventures and successful HIEs don't just look around for random opportunities. What they look for are defined problems that cause their customers enough pain, usually financial pain, that their customers are willing to pay cash money to get the problem solved. Today, I speak with Dr. Jan Lee about the real problems that the Delaware Health Information Network solves and how providers and patients reap the value created as a result. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Jan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's talk about DHIN. Tell us what you have going on in Delaware. Yes, DHIN stands for the Delaware Health Information Network, and we shorten it and call the acronym DIN. We are a statewide health information exchange, and what that means is we have a network that allows those who generate health data to use our network to transmit that information to the ordering provider. So for example, your doctor orders a lab test or an x-ray and the hospital or lab or imaging center where that was performed uses our network to send the result of that test back to the provider who ordered it. In the process, our network archives this information so that perhaps if you are away from home, down at the beach, whatever, have an accident or an illness, you go to an emergency department or you're seen by a physician other than who normally sees you, they can log into our network and have access with patient consent to the previous information that has been collected in other places. And so we compare ourselves to both the post office in that we deliver the results to those who should be getting them, but also the library in that we're a place where previous health data can be looked up by those who have a need to know and have patient consent to access that information. In a nutshell, that's been our core services for now eight years and we are beginning to branch out into some secondary sources as well that I'll be happy to discuss if you're interested. Oh, I am interested, my friend. I got one question before we go there. So Delaware, I mean, obviously that's not a large state and there's a lot of small states which are kind of clustered around the eastern seaboard. This is just one thing I've been curious about. There's a number of different HIEs that are in the general vicinity and I could really see a case where, you know, someone in Delaware would cross state lines or just go into another HIE's territory. How do you HIEs work together or do you? Well, this is the beauty of having national standards for interoperability of the data, and that is not nearly as easy as it sounds, 
and it's something that the healthcare industry and the healthcare community has been struggling with, frankly, for decades. We're making progress. There's more progress that needs to be made. But through the growing use of recognized standards, we are, in fact, able to at least have the technology that enables us to exchange information across those silos. Now, the technology has to also be accompanied by business rules and privacy and patient consent. So there's way more than just the technology to move data at play here. What I can say is there's no law that prevents a hospital or lab or any other healthcare entity from participating in more than one HIE. So on our borders, Maryland is another state with a very mature, robust health information exchange. And hospitals along the Maryland-Delaware border have elected to participate in both DIN and CRISP. They have a different business value in each of those uh, participations. And then in addition to those who directly participate in DIN, we also have an interstate agreement with CRISP such that if a resident of Delaware is seen in a Maryland hospital and that hospital sends information to CRISP, CRISP will share with DIN the admission and discharge information that that hospital sent them. And vice versa, if a Maryland resident comes to our beaches, comes to our casinos, comes for our tax-free shopping, uh, and has a medical incident and is seen at one of our hospitals, we will share the information about that Maryland resident back to CRISP so that each of us then are able to provide the data to those who have normal care of that patient and make sure that there's continuity of information to support continuity of care. Let's get into these secondary objectives that you were talking about that go beyond simply making, I say simply, that's the biggest overstatement I've made all week, um, the, the sharing of patient data amongst um, providers in the state. Well, clearly the first and preeminent use case was making sure that health information is available at the point of care to support clinical decisions that have to be made in the moment. And we've done that very well, and I'm tremendously proud of what DIN has achieved. But there are some corollaries that grow out of that. So for example, since the hospitals send us all of that information about patients who have been admitted and discharged, we now have the opportunity to go out to the healthcare providers and say, don't wait for the patient to show up in your office after they've been discharged from the hospital. Proactively reach out to them to ensure that they're getting adequate follow-up, that they understood their discharge instructions, that if there's been any change in their treatment regimen, you know it and are prepared to support that going forward. So we're able to provide a notification and alerting service to practices who subscribe to that so that we can notify them real time when one of their patients has been admitted to or discharged from 
a participating hospital or emergency department. It's hugely valuable for continuity of care and care coordination for that patient. You know, one of the most common causes of readmission after a patient is discharged is they simply didn't follow through on the discharge instructions they were given. And sometimes that's because they didn't actually understand them. And making early contact with their primary care provider can help to solidify that handoff so that things don't fall through the cracks. So that's one immediate and very valuable uh, sort of secondary use of the data that we're receiving. Well, let's drill down to that for a sec. I was reading a study that did, in fact, correlate exactly what you're just saying. I mean, it was for the AFib, the affibrillation class, and it was a pretty striking statistic that if a patient failed to show up for a visit with the follow-up physician within 14 days, they'd be back in the hospital in, in pretty large numbers. But here's my question for you. Is there a you know, a financial or a business incentive for the primary care physician to take it upon themselves to get these notifications. In other words, if I'm a primary care physician, why would I do this? Because obviously these notifications are going to take up a ton of time. They are. However, there there are at least three good reasons to take that time. One we really do care about our patients. And it really is in the best interest of the patient to get that kind of follow-up in an early and timely way. And I think if you would ask most physicians, that really would be the first reason they would give. It's best for the patient if we do this. However, business realities do have to be considered. And it is time-consuming. And someone has to do it, and that someone has to get paid. And so one of the things that has been uh, quite a step forward is that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has added an evaluation and management code, a billing code, for transitional care management. And there are actually two different levels depending on the level of severity or complication of the patient that determines if that patient is seen in a face-to-face encounter within seven days or 14 days, depending on how serious the issue is, the provider can actually bill for the transitional care management that occurred by reaching out, making phone calls, being proactive in reaching out to that patient. So there is some financial interest as well as it's just the right thing to do. And then with more value-based payment methodologies coming about as part of the activities under the Affordable Care Act, it's plainly the right thing to do to keep patients from getting readmitted. There's financial risk to participating organizations uh, for allowing unnecessary readmissions to recur, or preventable readmissions, I should say. And so, again, it is in the enlightened self-interest of the organizations to get out on top of early follow-up of patients who have been discharged from a hospital visit or an emergency department visit. You just mentioned that there's now going to be reimbursement for a seven-day or 14-day follow-up. What is that called, that reimbursement? transitional care management. So it's not the 
follow-up visit. It's not the visit at within seven days or 14 days that's new. It is the effort that you spend in reaching out to the patient to get them back in. So it is a little bit complicated, and some practices have frankly been a little bit skittish about taking advantage of this because if you don't follow all the rules, you don't get reimbursed, and it's time that you spent, and it may come back to actually to bite you rather than help you. So the rule is that you have to have direct contact with the patient. It can be voice or face-to-face, but you, you must have direct contact of some sort with the patient within 48 hours of the discharge. And then that's followed or accompanied by a face-to-face visit within either seven or 14 days. So it's that transitional part of proactively reaching out and making that contact before they come in. That is the new opportunity for reimbursement. Because frankly, some patients left on their own call and make an appointment with their primary care provider just don't do it. They either don't get around to it or they think, well, I'm feeling okay right now. I don't really need to do that. So that's what's really new about this. And I could see how what DIN is doing is sort of the backbone for that. In other words, primary care physician gets the notification that patient was just discharged. In that moment, they could pick up the phone and call the patient and then be eligible for that. And or it would seem to enable an IDN. And I I want to circle back to how integrated delivery networks or hospital systems use the HIE as opposed to using their own internal data sets. In other words, if I'm a hospital system and a patient gets discharged from one of the hospitals in my network, obviously I know that they've been discharged. So is what DIN is doing more valuable outside of individual hospital systems or do hospital systems themselves use the DIN to keep track of their own patients in order to get those value-based payments? Yes, indeed. So a hospital who has discharged a patient, and right now it's a, it's a specified set of conditions, but that set is growing and will very likely eventually really include all hospital discharges. If that patient is readmitted anywhere within 30 days of a discharge, there are financial penalties to the first hospital. So the, the presumption is you let them go too early and they bounced back. Now, that may or may not be the case. It may very well be that they were exactly at the status that they should have been when they were discharged, but they deteriorated, and they may have deteriorated again through lack of ambulatory follow-up. Nevertheless, if they readmit anywhere in the next 30 days, the previous hospital gets a penalty on that. And so it's definitely in their interest to get a better understanding of when patients go out of network and what is happening to them when they go out of network. And what DIN provides is that aggregated data across the state so that it's not just one health system looking at their own internal data. It's the ability for the data follows the patient and therefore the view of the patient must take into account the view of all of their data, no matter where it was generated. So we do have one large 
hospital system in Delaware who has taken this even one step further. They've sent us a watch list of their patients who have been discharged within the past X amount of time with specific conditions that they know to be of high risk for readmission. And whenever a clinical result hits the DIM network on one of those patients, they get an alert. Here's new information about that patient. And they're actually using that to feed into their own predictive modeling so that they're getting ever and ever and ever more granular views and a, and a richer understanding of what are the risk factors that cause a patient to be readmitted so that they can get out in front of that and get out on top of it. So this is just another great example of when you've got all the data, there's so much more you can do with it than just the patient showed up, I know what I need to know to make a decision right now, pat them on the head and move on to the next one. That's really interesting. So what this hospital system is doing is having the DIN collect information, which then they are pumping into their model so that they can do predictive analytics. Right. Interesting. Okay. So I interrupted you in the middle of your listing of (laughs) secondary objectives. The first one was notification on discharge, which we took in a whole bunch of different directions. Do you recall what your second one was? I do. (laughs) Well, it's, uh, it's research and clinical trials. Now, this is something that there's been a lot of interest in health information exchanges such as DIN, which aggregate data. And not all of them do, by the way. We could come back to that if you're interested. But those of us who aggregate and store data, there's a recognition that this is a rich pool of clinical information across a geography that should be a a rich trove for population-level views, for things that may inform health policy or interventions in certain areas where there are recognized pockets of illness, you know, where asthma crops up in neighborhoods, what's going on in that neighborhood. So there's a great interest in being able to take sort of those population-level analytics. Now, that's not the same thing as clinical research. There's also an interest in being able to use this aggregated data to support clinical research. And that opens a whole new set of issues because now you're getting into the ethics of human subjects. You're getting into the necessity for IRB oversight. And when the data is coming from multiple sources, what's the governing IRB? for that? How does each data sender have a level of confidence that research being done using their data is being conducted ethically and under appropriate oversight and with informed patient consent? So we are not there yet. This is a secondary use of data that we are pursuing aggressively but thoughtfully and carefully because you've got to get this right. We've got to protect the interests of patients, their privacy interests, their, uh, their well-being, and we have to protect the business interests of those who are contributing data to the network. So we're working on this, but we aren't there yet. That's, that's another major 
uh, secondary potential uh, secondary use of the data that that we have a real interest in. And I could see how there's so much potential there, but I also see exactly what you're saying. In other words, with that asthma example. So say that you find that in a particular town or within a particular geography or proximity to some you know, factory, there is a very high incidence of, of asthma. What you would immediately want to do is collect more information about, you know, to take the next step about the people that are presenting with asthma in those particular areas. So you would really almost instantly have to have some mechanism by which to gain people's permission to opt in to get asked more questions or more tests or opt into the study. Yes. Now, there is some reporting to public health that is required by law or regulation. So we don't have to get patient consent for that. It's already a law. So public health does syndromic surveillance. So the hospitals and emergency departments are required to report chief complaints to public health so that public health can do their analysis of where we may have uh, an epidemic developing of, let's say, swine flu or bird flu. Uh, avian flu. And so without DIN, this would be a much more manual process for the hospitals to do this. There's also, in every state, there are certain particularly important infectious or communicable diseases that are required to be reported to public health. And of course, they've got their own tool set for doing the analytics and and reaching out for case contacts and so on and so forth. You mean the CDC? Well, actually, I mean the local public health agencies. Ah, okay. And then it, it does all get, you know, the statistics all get rolled up to CDC. But it's the local public health agencies who have the immediate obligation to protect the public health of the populations that they serve. And so using DIN to transmit this information that we are already receiving electronically from the hospitals and emergency departments to our public health organization has certainly streamlined their ability to collect the data and the timeliness of the data they receive and their ability to act on it. In fact, back in, I believe it was 2010, when we first began doing syndromic surveillance reporting electronically through the DIN to public health, we actually were able to help public health detect and do early response to a real-world outbreak of swine flu, H1N1 flu, in Delaware. So there was an immediate public health benefit that resulted from, from our ability to contribute that information. It was very gratifying. I will say now that public health epidemiology division is one of the heavier state agencies that use DIN. And it's for exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about. It's their ability to follow up on the things that they are legally charged to oversee and address as their public health obligation to the population of Delaware. How exactly do they do that just in in the aggregate? Do they have an exclusion from the de-identification of data 
Or is this more of a, wow, there's this giant swine flu outbreak within this one community. Let's send notifications to all the doctors, irrespective of the patient's identities. So, you know, or are they able to contact patients who they believe have swine flu? They're able to do contacts if, for situations that require it. And there are certain communicable diseases where, in fact, they do have to go out, talk to the patient determine who their contacts are, you know, evaluate what the source of the outbreak may have been. So there's there's a lot of public health activity that takes place there, and you must have identifiable data to do that. So this is not something that we have to get patient consent for. It's law. And if we weren't doing it with DIN, the hospitals would still have to do it using other methods. There are two ways for public health to get information. One is for us to push it to them so that it goes directly into their systems and they're able to use their tools to view it and manipulate it. And this would be similar to us delivering a clinical result to a practice with an electronic health record. We push that data out to them, but they view it and manipulate it within their own systems. But another way for either the practice or public health to access the data would be through a pull meaning they log into the DIN portal and do a search for a given patient and view the relevant data in our query portal. So when public health gets information pushed to them that suggests there's something here we need to follow up on, they're then able to log into the DIN network, view a more complete record of that patient on our network, and more readily determine what follow-up they may have to do in outreach. So we save them time and effort in both ways by pushing data to them and then by giving them a place to pull the extra that, that gives them a, a more complete picture and allows them to uh, exercise a more, uh, a, a more fully informed response and outreach. Back to our list of secondary objectives. I'm not making this easy for you. Um, <laughs> we had notification of discharge, research, and clinical trials. What was your third? Well, a third would be actually getting patients involved in their own data and their own health care. So just as the physicians and other healthcare professionals of Delaware have deeply appreciated having only to go to one place, DIN, to get access to this aggregated data across many sources. It saves them enormous amounts of time in chasing down information that they really need in order to make the best informed decisions for their patients. And formerly, they might have had to make multiple phone calls or request faxes. And sometimes the data, just by the time you get it, the moment has passed. You have to make a decision while the patient is in front of you. And if you don't have the information, you don't have it. And you still have to do something with that patient. So this is giving them more timely and more complete information and saving them tons of time. Well, guess what? The patients would like that too. <laughs> so especially individuals who are caring for another person. If it's a parent caring for one or more children, if it's a spouse caring for someone, a loved one who is in frail health or has dementia and isn't able to even remember their, their own information, having access 
to that longitudinal complete information about the person whose care you're trying to coordinate is hugely valuable. And right now, because of the EHR incentive program, the meaningful use program, more and more and more physicians, hospitals, other healthcare entities are standing up their own portal to make the information they have about a patient accessible to them online in an electronic format, which is wonderful. And many patients are taking advantage of that. But the average Medicare patient, for example, sees seven different healthcare providers over the course of a year. And that may mean that they've got seven different portals that they've got to log into to aggregate all of their data and pull it into one place. So one of the things that DIN is hoping to do over the course of the next couple of years is stand up a statewide patient portal or patient personal health record. And there are really three different scenarios that we have in view. One would be, let's say the, the hospital or the provider, the, the, the doctor, already has their own portal. And they're already making their data accessible to their patients. And the patients already are used to logging into that portal. Wonderful. We don't want to change any of that. What we would like to be able to do is, on the back end, connect that provider's portal to the DIN as well as to their own EHR. And then when that patient goes in to query their data through their provider's portal, they're getting not only what that provider holds in their EHR, but everything else about them that anyone in the state, any of our participating organizations have contributed about that patient. So as far as the patient knows, they're just logging into their primary care provider's portal, but when they do so, they get everything. That would be scenario number one. Scenario number two would be the provider has not yet stood up a portal for whatever reason. All right, let DIN be that portal for you. And we, we will need to make sure that we are receiving information from that practice so that we can in turn feed it out to the patient. But we can set that up and even brand it for that practice so that, again, they can present to their patients, this is my portal, quote unquote. Um, it's really one that DIN is sponsoring that they subscribe to. But again, the patient experience is they are logging into a portal sponsored by their trusted primary care provider and have access to all of their data, no matter who has sent it. The third scenario would be, this patient has a doctor who still has not implemented an electronic health record. And we do have roughly 15 to 20% of practices in Delaware have still not implemented an electronic health record. Yet those patients should be able to electronically access their data where it exists in electronic format. And so we may not be able to help them get visit summary notes electronically when they visit their doctor. 
but we can help them get copies of their lab results, their radiology reports, any emergency department visits that they may have had, any hospital discharge notes that they may have had. There is still a lot of information about those patients that is available electronically within our network. And those patients should have the right to access that information directly if they so choose. And so we would have a segment of the portal, if you will, that allows the patient to log in directly to a DIN branded portal and access all of their health data. Now, again, there's there's technology, there's business rules, there's there's uh, other things besides just the technology that have to be worked out in this. But DIN is quite fortunate to have been one of 12 states to be awarded um, a, a rather respectable grant from the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. And one of the major initiatives that we will be undertaking over the next two years will be standing up such a portal as I've just described that will allow every resident of Delaware to be able to directly access their own health data online and download it and send it to whoever they want to have it. We're really excited about this. That is something which, you know, as as a, a patient would be incredibly valuable, which I know is one of the, at the top of this interview, you had mentioned that one of your primary objectives is to, to demonstrate value and to be valuable. Yes. Speaking of value, you're one of the very, very few public HIEs that is self-funding at this point. How'd you manage that? <laughs> very carefully. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it helped that we started about 10 years before this became a national fad. And in some ways, I hope this will be taken in the proper spirit. In some ways, it helped us that we got started before there were quite so many national standards and expectations because it allowed us to understand our own market and respond to our own market. In, in the early days when we began this work, the clearly expressed need of the ambulatory community was we need electronic lab results and, and other things too, but lab results was the really driving thing. And of course, EHR adoption was not as common then as it is now. And so it was a different landscape, but the real focus was what services would be valued and used? And that was clearly the answer after a pretty extensive you know, sort of environmental scan. And then the question became, so who gets the value out of that and should therefore pay? And the healthcare providers were quite adamant that they were not going to pay to have results of things they ordered delivered to them. It's the responsibility of the performing organization to provide them with results. So when we started talking to the hospitals and labs saying, well, then do you get a value out of this? Their response was, well, we only get value if this replaces the way we're delivering results right now. If this becomes one more in addition to, it's just additional cost to us. It doesn't save us anything. And so we were quite careful when we started this to formulate a business model that was predicated on the premise, you need to understand the value proposition behind what you're offering, the services that you're offering, and those who receive value should be paying proportional to the value that they receive. 
And so while we can talk about the social good of DIN, and we can talk about the, the value in streamlining, gathering information, you got to be able to translate all of that into dollars and cents ROI that makes somebody willing to pay money to set this up and make it work. And so the thing for us was if the hospitals and labs can shut down faxes, shut down mail, shut down courier, shut down point-to-point -point interfaces to dozens of practices and their EMRs, and do it all through DIN, that will save them hard dollars. In fact, we, again, working with our largest health system in the state, ask them to quantify what are you spending now, true total costs, on delivering a result, a report, to a practice. And when they started looking at all the ways that got done and the indirect as well as direct costs, they said, oh my gosh, our average typical cost per result is $1.80 per result. And so we said, if we can do it cheaper than that, and you can shut down all of those other things that you're doing now, there's a clear ROI that makes it worthwhile for you to financially support DIN. And so that's been the path that we've, that we've pursued. We are all about the social good. We are all about the value that we're providing to healthcare and what it means to patients. But we're also very conscious that somebody has to pay for this. And so you've got to be able to figure out who's going to get the benefit. What does that mean in dollars and cents terms that will justify what they will have to pay to support this? Now, sometimes, you know, we were blessed that we had some visionary leaders and some visionary hospitals who were willing to take it on faith that this would ultimately save them money. And so we had a partnership, a public-private partnership between the state of Delaware and the private sector in which the state committed five years of capital funding with the proviso that DIN could only draw down those funds when we had achieved dollar-for-dollar dollar match from private sources. So it was a public-private partnership from the very beginning. There was also, though, the clear understanding from the state, you've got five years to make this self-sustaining. And so those five years were focused on growing the ecosystem. And we did not try to be all things to all people. We tried to be absolutely brilliantly good at results delivery and the community health record. And over that time, we focused on enrolling more and more data senders and more and more ambulatory practices using the data. So it became a virtuous cycle. The more data that's in the network, the more valuable the doctors find the network. The more doctors who are participating in the network, the more they are the ones who say to you know this or that lab or radiology group, why aren't you in DIN? I get all of my other results through DIN. Why should I give you business if you're not going to participate in DIN? It, it, that has really driven the ecosystem to coalesce. And we now have every health system, every acute care facility in Delaware sends their data through DIN 
as close to 100% as you can ever get in a constantly changing denominator. We have all of the providers in Delaware who place clinical orders and therefore need to receive results are participating in DIN, enrolled in DIN, and 95% of them have elected to discontinue all the other ways that they used to get results and rely solely on DIN. That is where the hospitals and labs get their ROI when the practice signs off. And I love this because it is a, a story which far is far bigger than than simply an HIE. I mean, basically, it's the challenge which every entrepreneur faces that needs to be overcome in order to really pinpoint what exactly is your value and who is willing to pay for that. It's such a deceptively simple question, but it's one that is the biggest fail of many entrepreneurial ventures, that they identify a problem, but it's not one which people are willing to actually pay for. Right. Where can people find out more information about DIN if they are interested? We would love for folks to come to our website, and it's din.org, D-H-I-N.org. And we have lots of information there, whether you're a healthcare provider, a hospital or lab that would qualify as a data sender. We have a section for consumers. Uh, so I think there's a lot there that, uh, that anybody might find of interest. Thank you so much for the conversation, Jan. It has been very enlightening. You're most welcome. It was my pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far, there are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.